Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rosiel and my guest today is Molly Arbogast. She's the president of C- and CEO of POV Sports Marketing, formerly of the Philadelphia Eagles, Learfield Sports, the WNBA, Palace Sports and Entertainment, and IMG. This was such an awesome conversation, getting to hear all the stories that Molly has to tell from all these places, even from the Eagles. Some of those stories were pretty cool too, but really just kind of how she got into what she was doing, how she's been all over the marketplace in leagues, on teams, in radio. Uh, it just It's incredible how much she's been able to do in just a short period amount of time. So I'm very excited for you to enjoy this episode with Molly Arbogast. Yes. Today, my special guest on the For the Love of Sports podcast is Molly Arbogast, president and CEO of POV Sports Marketing, formerly of the Philadelphia Eagles, Learfield Sports, the WNBA, Palace Sports and Entertainment, and IMG. Molly, thanks for hanging out with me today. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thanks, Mike, for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Uh, I would never work for the Eagles personally. The WNBA <laughs> sounds pretty cool too. So, I mean, you, you got some fun stuff on your resume, but the I first question. I know where your fan passion lies. I know where your passion lies. I'm very and... open and honest. I go to Philly all the time. I have friends that live there. So it's, um, it's a very okay place to go occasionally. Uh, but other than that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't catch me dead there. But um, first question <laughs> I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast, Molly, is why do you love sports so much? Oh, God, that's, that's an amazing question. I grew up in a house with four brothers. And so understanding sports and playing sports is kind of part of my family's DNA. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, recently, obviously, the first episode of The Last Dance uh, with Michael mm-hmm. Jordan and his uh, era, um, I was there. I remember working at the Detroit Pistons and kind of finding a reason to walk down the visitor tunnel just to be like, oh my God, there's Michael Jordan and there's Scottie Pippen and, you know, Steve Kerr and all these guys. And it was, you know, just such an interesting, fascinating time in the NBA. And, you know, I think this, this piece that's been just so well produced, uh, you know, chronicling the evolution of Jordan and the Bulls and the whole story. And I, you know, trying not to skip ahead. It's hard not to. It just so reminds us of the power of sport to unite and move people. And um, I recently said to someone, I commented on something uh, this morning and I said, you know, sports is recess for the soul. Whether you're watching it or playing it, it just brings you joy. As a parent, I watch my children play sport and I feel like I'm out there with them. But then at the same time, I watched the Eagles play, or I grew up a Chicago Bears fan. I don't know if that helps our relationship, Mike, but I did a grow bit. up a Bears fan. I've gone back a little bit to my Bears roots, because again, that family connection of sitting in our home in Lake Forest, Illinois, and watching the Bears play, and that happened to be the town where the Bears had their practice facility, and still do. And I would ride my bicycle over to the old Hallis Hall in Lake Forest with my brothers, our old Schwins, you know, you had the five speed or the 10 speed, definitely dating myself. I don't know if that's a thing yet still. And I would stand at the lock, the stockade fence 
and Walter Payton would come by and we'd stick our fingers through the fence and he would give us little finger fives. And that is why I love sport because the ability for, you know, just the, to unify and, and be so connected to the athlete, whether it's your 11 year old son on a soccer field or a professional athlete that is at the core of sports. And it's what moves me and makes me see the value in connecting brands to sports, whether I was on the sales side or now the buying side. I, I completely Completely agree. I, I love the way you say that recess for the soul because it is an easy way to get away from whatever whatever's going on. Obviously, being here in the New York City area, obviously everything that happened after 9-11, I'm also a very, very big Mets fan. So every year reminded of, you know, that Mike Piazza home run and it always kind of brings chills. Sure, and I just got chills. I just got it's chills. Just, it's yeah. incredible kind of, you know, just thinking about what sports is capable of doing. It brings so many people together and then it allows those emotional connections that you're not really going to find in too many other places. I, I, not very religious, not very political, but right after those music, two, I'd I say. I think music does music. the same. Music, I think, has the same. Everyone remembers their first rock concert. Mm -hmm. I know that there a lot go. of, uh, you know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, passwords these days are what was your first car? What was your first rock concert? For my security, uh, cybersecurity, I will not dis disclose. Ah, oh, I but thought we were going to get it. But I know, but, but it was, it was uh, you know, it's one of those things that it's a moment in time, whether it's an athletic an event or a concert, um, a tailgated, a great mm -hmm. game. It's the, uh, it's that moment in time and that is burned in your memory. And I think that's why, again, music and, and sports are really on our parallel paths of, of human connection. I love that. I love that a lot. And yet being at those events too, I mean, it's one thing to watch it with family and friends. That's one type of event and that's one type of emotion but being at some of these events you know I was at the Mets World Series in 2015 and I've never felt that feeling before I don't know what that emotion or feeling is and I you know I think the only time I'm ever going to feel it again is if I'm in City Field with 70,000 however many other people doing and feeling and being in the same place which is uh is just fantastic and and you brought up corporate sponsorship already and it's obviously that's what you do and that and you've been doing it very well for a very long time how do you feel like how do you get brands to understand that, that emotional connection? Because yes, there's dollars and cents. Yes, there's, you know, seeing the image and utilizing the likeness. But how do you really get brands to understand, as you said, on both sides of the table, to understand the emotional connection and how much further that's going to go through sports than if they're just putting up a billboard or, you know, doing some, you know, just a regular social media campaign? Yeah, I mean, it's the core of why sports marketing is effective. And I think uh, we're a very data-driven uh, group of people here at POV Sports Marketing, and we always make sure that the data backs up our recommendation. And I think when you look back to the propensity for a consumer to engage with a product or purchase a product or drive trial because that product is sponsoring a team or an athlete or an influencer um, in some way, shape, or form, and it drives that, hey, I'm going to Google what is that company on the backdrop. I think we've all done it. There are a couple that I, I even Googled when I was at the Eagles. I was like, who was on the backdrop at the Patriots? And that drives that interest and connection and awareness. And I think if you go back and really look at data to help brands make decisions, uh, that's what's required today. I think rewinding in my career 20 years ago, uh, CMOs made a lot more decisions based on gut and instinct. And now while gut and instinct are still important, I always say, that's wonderful. Let's not get emotional about this. Let's make sure that the data backs up the decisions that we're making. And they want to see that too. Um, as an example, you are a Giants fan. So if we've got a CMO in, in, uh, in Chicago who's making decisions that are going to impact you know, the, the New York area and they're like, 
well, I, you know, this is the consumer I want to reach, but I don't really like football. And I'm like, we're going to still look at the giants and the jets and see how the data aligns with your core target. And then we're going to go from there. And I might come back and tell you, no, it's not going to be football for you in that market. We're going to partner with the garden and all of their different properties, or, um, you know, we're going to partner with the, the, the nets. We're going to, you know, we're going to look at the baseball offerings, the soccer offerings. And, and I think that that's where if you can be unemotional in the decision-making process, while the emotion might drive your interest, the decision needs to be made in data that aligns with your core target of not just who's consuming your brand, but who you, you know, broadening the consumer uh, demographic of who you're trying to reach and getting more people to try to migrate your brand north or south and, and broaden that consumer base. That's incredible. This is going to be such a fun conversation, Molly. I cannot wait. So your first I'm a total job, marketing geek. I've worked yeah, in sports for 25 plus years, almost 30. But I have always been driven by the data and the data that's available now. I mean, I think back to starting in the 90s. There wasn't data. The internet wasn't a thing. Uh, I mean, I remember running the websites at Palace Sports and Entertainment because I was a geek. And they were like, sure, you can help design six websites. Uh, and I loved it. And so it's, um, it's just, it's really come so far and you want to make sure you don't get bogged down in the data that mm -hmm. can happen. And some people, they get, you know, analysis paralysis and you're like, stop, we're making these decisions based on fact, but the data is, you know, I love it. I geek out about it. I think it's so cool that you're able to enjoy what you do through what you do, uh, right? You know, being mm -hmm. able to look at the data and looking and helping these brands and then doing that through the lens of sports and sports marketing, you know, something else that you've loved your entire life. So there's, there's nothing like it. And your first job right out of school, you got a director of sales and marketing job with IMG uh, for their Latin America region. How, how do you get a director job right out of school? What were well, you doing? It, that there was an internship. There was a three-month okay. internship. So oh, it's geez, actually a whole three-month internship. Three My goodness. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes being first is better than being good, you know, when you're getting into a, a field. I think anyone who's gotten, went into esports five years ago, and I had a few friends I counseled on it. They were like, I don't know, is this going to be a thing? I'm like, it is a thing. Yeah. It's not going to be a thing. It's already. And, and the first people to become experts in the space and truly knowledgeable that can translate to the traditional sponsorship buyer or media buyer is going to be a winner. Um, so I went to uh, St. Lawrence University and graduated in 1991 with a degree in government and Spanish, huh. uh, which could not be further from the sports. So I would say my life training for sports was much more my four brothers and my father um, and my mom to a degree. But I uh, happened to be on the senior class committee of St. Lawrence uh, my senior year. And uh, the head of the senior class, a guy named Tim Charlton, who's now a top orthopedic surgeon in LA, he came to me at a frat party and he said, you haven't done anything to serve on this committee. I know it's a resume builder, but you're gonna need to step up. And my maiden name was Milady, so he threw a Milady in there. And I was like, what? Whoa, easy there, pal, what's the issue? And he kind of laughed and he said, so we have this graduation speaker and his name is Mark McCormick and he runs a company called International Management Group. I think they call it IMG. I'm like, oh, okay, sports marketing, what is that? And he's like, well, that's your job because we have like a group of kids that are gonna protest graduation. And I was like, okay. So I went to the library and looked through the stacks of old copies of Sports Illustrated to educate myself. I had to go in front of the president, the dean and this group of, of students to, basically defend that Mark McCormick was going to be a tremendous graduation speaker 
speak to the class as a whole, not just to the corporate, you know, corporate America types that were mm -hmm. looking to pursue that career path. And everyone agreed not to protest graduation at St. Lawrence University, uh, which has like an enrollment of 2,200 people. So it's not a big school, but a wonderful school. And uh, so what's interesting is in doing all this research, I had wanted to go into advertising. I thought, wait a second. You mean I can work in sports, do this geeky marketing stuff and actually like have a career? I'm, I'm all in. So after graduation, I wrote Mark McCormick a letter like on a typewriter. I think we had, uh, we had like word perfect at that point. Um, so I remember going to my dad's office and typing up a letter. I first spelled his name wrong, which is M-A-C-K, not I-C-K. And I had to go to the postmaster in the mail, mail uh, the post office in Lake Forest, crying to beg him to let me take the envelope out of the Dropbox outside of the, you know, so basically we violated like 30 federal laws. <laughs> he gave me the envelope back. This was again, 1991, 92. And I wrote Mr. McCormick a letter uh, and got it, his name spelled right. And, uh, and I began to stalk his assistant for a job. So fast forward in this time, I waited tables for a little bit, and then I actually had an opportunity to go to Japan, to Osaka, Japan, to teach English uh, to Japanese executives who were doing a lot of gl global travel. So I kind of like to say I got an MBA in business at a very young age, but uh -huh. from global executives working for Mitsubishi Denki and uh, Nippon Paint and all these different companies where I counseled uh, their senior leadership on conversational English. And in calling IMG Cleveland, uh, you know, all the wee hours of the morning um, from Japan, just so I could talk to Lori Roggenberg, uh, begging her for a job. And so finally, they hired me because of my Spanish. And I know that's a very long way to get back to the majors, but I'm a very good writer because of my government major. And Spanish is what got me my first job because they were going into Latin America and they needed people to schedule meetings. And so I worked with three other interns out of the Cleveland office, I actually lived at Mr. McCormick's house, which kind of became a corporate house because he had moved to Florida um, in his daughter's room, you know, with like a couple other agents, Nola Miyasaki and some others. And, um, you know, so I had my first three months at IMG as an intern. And then, uh, and, you know, I was fluent in Spanish because I had lived in Spain my junior year and was also proficient in writing Spanish so I could communicate in both languages. And that's how I got my start in sports. And the rest was hustle, hard work. I worked every weekend when I was an intern. Um, I mean, I, I don't regret that at all because I did lean in and uh, I was the one that got the full-time job. So I was very blessed. I love it. I mean, I think, I think it's, again, so as you said, government governance, government and Spanish is relatively far away from sports marketing, but at the same time, you were able to utilize those experiences and the knowledge that you got doing that mm -hmm. and turn that into something. You know, I know a lot of writers and um, a lot of writers that are history majors and English majors, uh, you know, sports writers specifically, they didn't go to journalism, they took history. So they learned how to write and what to write about and how, you know, how to do that. So I always think it's very interesting to kind of see that path. And as you said, I mean, also, a big portion of it was the hard work, the hustle, working every single weekend at 20 whatever years old, taking the opportunity to move from New York to Japan, call up Cleveland from Japan in the morning to then move and work in Cleveland, which is a great city. I've been there multiple times. I absolutely love it. A good friend of mine lives there. And it's just, you know, I think that's also a very important piece of the puzzle is, you know, how if, if this office was anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world, it sounds like, especially you probably would have went there no matter what. And you know, you I think go. that's great advice as well as you have to 
go where the jobs are, especially, you know, at a very young age. And it sounds like you're capable and, and more than, more than willing to do something like that. Yeah. Someone, uh, and I actually see something written. It only takes one yes for success behind you. And I think the word yes needs to be said pretty much your entire, Mm -hmm. the first decade of your career, um, to opportunity. And if something scares you, I say, don't necessarily say no, think about why it scares you. And it's probably, you'll think, you know, oh, I'm not good at that. Well, you don't know you're not good at it. And I think most successful CEOs, um, and it tends to be, you know, this is something I think women face more. We, we kind of feel like we have to be the controller, the CFO, the president, the head of HR, the head of IT, the head of football operations before we could go for a president job. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, calm down. You don't have to do every single job in a company to be the CEO. What you have to do is be adaptable and know that when you don't know, you hire the people who will help you be successful. But saying yes at a young age is really important to put yourselves into a situation to continually be learning. And I think as your career evolves and you hit the ripe old age of 40 and you say, oh my God, I've got this down. I say, no, you don't. Then you got to push yourself out of your comfort zone and continue to evolve because I'm a big believer, my father was, uh, in lifelong learning and continuing to commit to putting yourself in that vulnerable position to fail because, you know, the adage, you don't learn until you fail. I think it's got to continue through your career. It's not just a young person issue. It's a career development issue. People need to continue to become vulnerable so they can learn and fail fast. And I love how you think about that, especially, you know, as you said, you know, almost 30 years into your career, how you're still thinking like this. And now obviously things have changed and you have learned a lot. So hopefully if you're failing, you're failing way bigger than you were before. Uh, you know, it's some cool opportunities. I'm terrible at Fortnite. I'm terrible okay. at Fortnite, but That's I've played Fortnite and I've played Rocket League and there are a couple of games that I need to get so I can play them Mm-hmm. So that I can actually advise my clients, no, Counter-Strike Go is not for, not I mean, I can you. tell you it's not for us, but I want to go in and see it and I want to go in mm-hmm. and play it. And it's funny because I might be over 50. I might be, I'm reversing age at this point. I'm going to be like 29 in my I was going to say 29 pretty yeah, soon, right? 29 again. But I think that, you know, people who want to be good at something, sometimes you got to go out and swing a bat or mm-hmm. pick up a joystick and a joystick listen to me. Oh, uh, that takes me Atari. way back. I was outstanding. Yeah. I was outstanding at Frogger back in the day. Um, but you know, you've got to go out and say, I'm going to be bad at this, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, you got to try it. And so exactly. that you can say, no, I've experienced it. It's actually really cool. Or, and it's not for your brand or, you know what, this is going to be for your brand. Cause the demo, cons- the, con- the consumer is, is spot on with who we are. Mm-hmm. And as a brand, you can take risk. So and it's, I think it's it, something important to do. I like how also you said that point because it's not just looking at the data, right? We can look at data all day. Like I'm a huge baseball fan and you can kind of see what happened by just looking at box scores, but watching the game, things are a little bit different than just reading Mike Trout's stat line. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's the, how it happened and why it happened. So I think it's really important that not only are you saying, you know, the demographic of Fortnite makes sense for your brand, but I've played it and I understand why it's for that demographic and what's going on. And I've talked to people inside that demographic. And I think that just adds that extra layer of credibility and validation to what you do and how you do it, which I think is extremely important. And, you. and you're totally right. Like if, if you're not continuing to learn, if you're not continuing to fail, even, you know, 10, 15, 30 years into your career, you're falling stagnant. And once you fall stagnant, you start to fall behind. And that is never, ever a good thing. And thankfully, you're still doing what you're doing, Molly, and I love it. So your first, you. your first position is IMG 
I mean, let's call it your first position just for lack of a better term. IMG in Cleveland. You then moved to Detroit to work with the Palace Sports and Entertainment Group. So that's the Palace at Auburn Hills. That's the Detroit yep. Pistons. Which is no longer. Um, it's so sad. Yeah, right. It was it's... raised, uh, I guess, last fall. Yeah, I think uh, so last Detroit year. So Detroit Pistons, the... Detroit Shock, Detroit Vipers, minor league hockey, IHL at that time, and uh, two outdoor amphitheaters. So, so very, a... very broad offering. And again, moving, you know, Cleveland to Detroit isn't quite Japan to Cleveland, but it's still, you know, it's still a move. You're still uprooting yourself. Oh, but I, when I was at IMG, I had gone from Cleveland to New York, to Cleveland, to New York, to Miami. Oh. So I, because we eventually opened an office in Miami for Latin America and mm -hmm. I was flying, I'd literally like fly to Mexico City for lunch with the guys at Corona. And in Mexico, when you have lunch, it's like a three or four hour endeavor. Nice. And, and so, you know, my favorite place down there is a place called Hacienda de los Morales. It's a great restaurant. If you ever get to Mexico City, definitely worth it. And you just, you dine. And then I'd get on a plane and fly back to Miami. So when I moved to Detroit, um, I'd gotten to the point where I'd wake up in Latin America and I'd be like, based on the wake up call, I'd be like, oh, I'm in Caracas. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was traveling a lot. Uh, uh -huh. And it was very cool, but it was like, and when I look back at the global history of what was going on in Latin America at that time with Pablo Escobar being alive and well in Colombia, and here I am in Venezuela, and Venezuela is a very different place today than it was. I'd like bomb around in public taxis by myself, uh, and everyone thought I was Cuban because I was blonde. So um, <laughs> fun stories, but I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to travel as much mm -hmm. internationally as I was. And so I had an opportunity to join Palace Sports Entertainment, which was like adding another 13 brothers to my life. It was me and 13 guys. It was so it. much fun. Great time in my life. Just loved that time in my career. Learned a ton. And I was going to say, this also seems like a really expand, another expansive moment, because as you said, it's not just, you know, IMG in Latin America. Now you're working and you're working with hockey, football, or uh, basketball, um, you know, NBA and WNBA. You're working mm -hmm. with the, the musical venues, as you said, as well. So how much did that move and that time there expand, I guess, your knowledge of just the entertainment space outside of sports? Uh, I mean, it was just vertical. I mean, I, I will say IMG was an amazing training ground mm -hmm. because at IMG at the time, I mean, we, and still to this day, I mean, IMG was representing, you know, athletes, tournaments, media rights, which again, are not where they, I mean, they've t just taken to a yeah. whole new level because of the evolution of digital and social. And again, for the younger people listening, you know, I want you to imagine a world where there is no internet. There are no smartphones. That's the work world. I, we, we typed letters, I mean, and put them in an envelope and wrote enclosure to attach your resume and put it with a stamp and sent it in the mail because that was the way we communicated. The fastest way to communicate in the early nineties was a fax. And I remember sending Mr. McCormick like an 85 page fax once. Oh my God. To, to a gentleman named Chad Biggs, who is now at Harris Blitzer wonderful guy. And he had to be on the other side of the, the phone, taking the curly fax paper, trimming it, and then putting it on a copier to copy it onto paper. So I might've bought him some cocktails when I was in New York <laughs> after that fax, because that was a lot. But I think IMG prepared me so well for a job at the palace because I had done a classical music tour in Latin America with a very famous soprano named Barbara Hendricks who had actually sung at uh, President Clinton's in our first inauguration. And it was really an interesting dichotomy between going to an Itzhak Perlman concert when you were at IMG, going to the US Open tennis. I was at the French Open tennis, uh, you know, uh, US Open golf. I mean, it was, it was like you got a little taste of everything. 
I had to know a little to, little bit about motorsports. We had represented mm-hmm. a driver named Ayrton Senna, who, God rest his soul, passed away in a race. And, um, you know, I mean, it was like we had to know about five to 10 minutes about everything IMG did. So it really prepared me to have that versatility of mm-hmm. being able to go into a new property and say, tell me what I need to know. You know, who's Pete Savaglia? Mm-hmm. So anyone would be like, who was Pete? He was, the, he was one of the stars on the Detroit Vipers. I went to Harvard undergrad. Like you had to know a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sergei Samsonov, I remember we signed him. And this is, I mean, obviously he went on to do amazing things in the NHL. But I remember walking down to, his, uh, to the hockey operations and saying, hey, I need a, a Sergei Samsonov autographed jersey. And they're like, okay. And they brought it back up to me. And I'm like, he didn't sign the right side. <laughs> So we went downstairs and I'm like, Sergey, you sign the back, you know? And he's like, Oh, and he was speaking Russian. I don't do, I don't do I, Spanish. I'm good at, but not Russian. I actually helped the Spanish. We had a, a, what was it called? God, it was like, this is embarrassing. The soccer team. We had an indoor soccer team. I'm saying mm-hmm. the soul, but it wasn't the soul. Um, we had a soccer team, uh, arena soccer at the palace and the coach who was a Brit called me, he would call me downstairs and he'd have me negotiate the contracts with the players. Cause I could speak Spanish. Oh my goodness. That's funny. And I remember looking at the guys and being like, he wants to give you this as a per diem. I think we should go back at $25 a day. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, they want 25. (laughs) That's fantastic. But, uh, it was, uh, it was, again, I was prepared because Mm -hmm. of really, I could not have asked for a better sports management degree than Mm -hmm. my time in international management group working for Mark McCormick, who he and his, his son Todd, I worked for for a period of time. They were so wonderful at sharing knowledge mm-hmm. and preparing you and having, and I had access to Mr. McCormick. It was amazing. And uh, I owe him my career, quite frankly. Well, you worked very hard too. So, um, you know, shout out to him for giving you that shot, but you, you definitely took advantage of it. once the doors open, you just got to kind of drive that truck right on through. And yeah. it seems like you did a pretty darn good job at that. So, so essentially if it sounds, if I, if I have this correctly, IMG, you had all these properties and all these things that you had to talk about. And then Palace and Entertainment Group, that number got just a little bit smaller. Yeah. So you just had to know more about fewer things. And then you move on to the Eagles where it's super small super small and one thing. I mean, what was that like, I guess, kind of almost funneling down throughout your career up to this point, at least like how much, what more did you learn along the way that you could take by, you know, going from IMG, where, as you said, you had to know a hundred things about a hundred different people to now the Eagles, you just have to know every single thing about one organization. No, it's a really good uh, uh, you know, observation. You know, I think it, it, it's a, it was the shift to really going to the biggest team in a market. Mm-hmm in the biggest league in the country and understanding everything was going to be bigger. The deals mm-hmm. were going to be bigger. The Eagles model was, I had joined the Eagles in 2000, February of 2000. And, you know, here I was already almost eight, nine years, nine years into my career. And uh, they had hired me um, basically to ha- come in and be part of the sales team that was going to be selling the new stadium. And we were at the vet- veteran stadium. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking through the vet with the cats and the rats. And it was like a real thing. You'd be like, I just saw oh, a rat run across. It's the a concourse. real thing. Cause, yeah. Absolutely. Cause the offices were like our offices and were one part of the vet and the, uh, you know, Joe Banner and the other leadership were in a dip. You had to walk down the hallway and take an elevator upstairs. Um, the NFL is, is just, it's an, it's a, it's a different animal. And um, I was so honored to be at the Eagles, both, both tours of duty. I was there in the early 2000s and then returned. I'd originally mm-hmm. been a director in the group and then I returned later. But to be able to work with the team during the construction of the NovaCare complex, their, their beautiful practice facility, 
and then being at the groundbreaking for a new stadium where every deal we did was new because most, you know, all the signage at the vet was sold by the Phils. The pouring rights deal was done by the Phils. So the ability to go and work on a pouring rights deal in a building that didn't have an incumbent in our business, that's pretty much unheard of. Mm -hmm. And so my learning curve was absolutely vertical. I worked for two extremely smart and giving men, and I say giving in the, in the sharing and teaching me how to do things. And that was uh, Len Komorowski and Dave Rowan. And Len's the president and uh, CEO of the Cleveland Cavaliers now, and still is a mentor of mine to this day. If I have a big work decision to make, I'll call Uncle Len. Uh, but uh, he, he really taught me how to drive and work hard and mm -hmm. you're only as good as your last deal and guess what? It better not be a trade. And uh, so it was, it was such a great experience um, and just learning um, all the data around the NFL and going into a new building was just, uh, it was career changing for me. You know, you, you go from doing $3 million in revenue a year as a, as a sales executive to 10. And, you know, that's, that's a big evolution, but the mm -hmm. deals were just bigger, more complex. You were at a higher level, um, a lot of more national decision makers um, than my prior, my prior days. And how much deeper did you, did you get to go with the, with, with the Eagles? Like, as we said before, like with all those other groups uh, with IMG and, and with, um, you know, Palace Sports and Entertainment, it was a lot of moving parts. It was a lot of different um, opportunities. So you had to know something about all of them, but with the Eagles, like how much deeper did you get to go into the organization into, you know, with the players? Like, I, I don't really know how to ask this question because I've never been oh, there. No, it's but a really good question. I feel it's like there's so much more you can get into with being with one property. Yeah, I, uh, you know, you do, st it was a time when a lot more, I think more information was shared then than mm -hmm. now, because social media wasn't where it is now. And now I think the communication between front office decisions and, you know, like the football operations in the front office, mm -hmm. they have to be a little tighter. And that's just out of pure precaution that someone makes a poor decision and posts something socially. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't have that problem in 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, social just didn't exist. I remember looking at uh, naming rights, negative contracts for Lincoln Financial and sitting with their team and saying, the word social media doesn't even appear in your contract. We need to fix that as a mm -hmm. good partner and do some things with you guys that are going to be different. And I think that that's, um, you know, it's, it, it's just wild to say that out loud. But, yeah. um, you know, I think that you, you end up getting you know, you are, you start to become friends with the players. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Hugh Douglas used to high five me in the hallway. I remember when I was there the first time I was more contemporary. I was older than all the players, but I was still like more of a contemporary and I was Molly. And then when I went back, I was ma'am. And I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> I'm like, this is wrong. It was um, only but a it couple years change. later, right? I, well, you know, I mean, it was That's enough funny. years and a couple children, uh -huh. a husband and a couple children later. Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, it, I was a different phase in my career, but I think, um, you know, it was interesting. And I was there during, you know, Andy Reid was just such a tremendous force at the Eagles during that time. We went to four NFC championships, only won one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I did not like losing NFC championships. Uh, but I remember standing on the field when we won the NFC championship the year we beat the, um, we beat the Falcons and went to Jacksonville. Um, and Chad Lewis and I, I mean, he just hugged me, uh, and we were, and he actually had, he literally had like a broken ankle. Uh, he had just broken his, his ankle going into the end zone for this, this touchdown. And he was holding my shoulders and I was holding his pads and I was like, we did it. And it was such an amazing feeling because 
here I am a woman working for an NFL team, but I was on that team. Mm -hmm. And the players, we were a very tight knit championship group at that time. And my timing was off on the last one because I missed, we had just brought Mm -hmm. Doug Peterson back when I left the Eagles um, the last time I uh, got Doug to sign a helmet. And I said, you know, I don't collect player autographs. I collect coach autographs because I think it's so difficult for a, a grown man to coach other young, young men mm-hmm. and get them to all move in the same direction and have belief and hope and create that locker room chemistry. I have such respect for coaches of every sport, not just football. And so I had him sign it. I said, you know, when I left the last time I had Andy Reid sign this helmet, but I also had John Harbaugh, Steve Spagnola, Ron Rivera. Uh, um, I mean, the list is long. Childress. Wow. I mean, yeah. Leslie Frazier. Um, Jim Johnson, God rest his soul. These were men who I became friends with because they would do special events for my clients. Mm-hmm. And I kind of walked down the hallway and say, who wants to do a chalk talk? I got a hundred, you know, hundred dollar gift card to cap grill. And they're like, you know, you'd hear this, I'm available when, you know, that kind of uh-huh. thing. So it was not, we did have a good relationship and mm-hmm. rapport. Um, and, uh, you know, again, when you feel that connected to a team, uh, it's easy to sell it. Mm-hmm. You have to be passionate about what you sell or you will not be successful. I truly believe that. People see through it. They see if you're not really passionate. A hundred percent. I think that's the most important thing. If you don't believe in what you sell, people, as you said, they'll see through that and they'll, then why would they want to buy something if the salesman isn't even, or the saleswoman is not even Mm -hmm. passionate about it? It doesn't make any sense. So I think it's, again, I think it's really cool kind of how you were able to not scaled down, but kind of become, you know, more specific with your offerings. And then from the Eagles, thankfully you left. I mean, it took six years, but you finally got out of there. Um, <laughs> it says the Giants fan. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you, you end up going to the WNBA. So now you're working for a league. Mm-hmm. What was that opportunity like? And, and I guess why did why'd I do it? Yeah. Why'd you do it? Like it's yeah, a cool was- opportunity, but I'm curious. It was interesting. You know, I had been at the Eagles for six years and a couple of my buddies in the business, when I announced I was going to the WNBA, they called me and they're like, what are you doing? You're like on track to be a VP in the NFL. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You could run a sales group. And I said, it's going to be hard. And I want to go do something that's hard. And I Mm want to do something at a league. And this is going to be hard. And I get to build a sales group that does not exist. The NBA had always sold the WNBA the way they initially sold the D league or now G Mm -hmm. league as a, um, you know, kind of an additional opportunity, an additional platform. And David Stern and Adam Silver, Adam and Donna Orander hired me. Donna was the president of the WNBA, amazing woman. And uh, they brought me in to build a sales team and a service team so that the WNBA could stand on its own. And we were very successful in a very short period of time. And it was hard. And I was, you know, sleeping on a friend's couch a couple nights because I was commuting from Philadelphia to New York Ooh. on the Amtrak and the league underwrote my, my commute because it was part of my negotiation. Um, but I wasn't, was dating my husband at the time. I wasn't quite sure where, if we were getting married and I thought, I'm not going to move to New York until I know that mm-hmm. this isn't the guy. He was the guy. Mm-hmm. So that worked out. That's um, nice. But it was good. But it was the idea of going in and building out a group and just developing a sales process, developing sales foundation, understanding the value proposition and the offering of the WNBA. It's one of the only leagues where you can sell the teams as part of a league deal. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a, 
in a in a manageable like you can actually put the benefits in the deal the mm -hmm. nfl and other leagues will allocate money to teams and then they go negotiate each of those deals i was actually able to do at the time 14 teams and the league with benefits at the at the team level in the master deal and it was great and i loved it and just building and figuring out what worked what didn't work um you know just it was it was an amazing experience i happened to get engaged to my husband about five months after i arrived and i had made the decision i was a little older and i said we do want to have children i'm gonna have to, i gotta make some career decisions mm -hmm. here and it's one of those things women do face i have zero regrets um about that but i stepped away from the business i remember adam silver he's who was just showing such tremendous leadership during this crisis um i have so much respect for him and um, when he interviewed me, uh, you know, or when I was leaving the league, he, we were at dinner one night and he was like, with a bunch of people and, he, and they didn't know I was leaving yet. And he kept saying, but we have really good healthcare. <laughs> I'm like, yes, Adam, we have great healthcare. And he's like, well, what if you did everything? And he was like, what if you did everything from Philly? And so did Heidi Uberoth. She was so kind when I was there, um, very supportive of me. I said, listen, I need to, to, I need, you need someone in New York full time mm -hmm. to do this. And I need to make a decision for my personal life. And so I stepped away for three years. My husband and I were married in October. We welcomed the, our first son the following September and then our second son uh, the following November. So I took about three years off to raise my boys or get them to one, uh, at least one years old. And then I went back to sports, uh, via Learfield sports. But my WNBA experience working with some tremendous people, Mark Tatum, um, Emilio Collins, uh, just great guys. And Mark, Matt Soloff, who's a dear friend, uh, who's still now back at the league after a time at the, with the Mets. Um, just, it was an interesting time to be at the league. I have some great David Stern stories. He was, he made me laugh. And, uh, he, and again, I, some people, he was tough to work for, but he liked me cause I, I, I didn't BS. I told mm -hmm. him exactly what was happening and he liked that. So he and I got along very well, but uh, God rest his soul. Mm -hmm. I had the uh, incredible opportunity of getting to meet David Stern. Uh, I want to say back in July, if I'm not mistaken. So a little less than a year ago. Uh, he was very nice. Uh, you know, I have nothing, nothing bad to say about him. I do, I do think he fixed that draft though. I don't know. You, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one. We'll table that discussion for, uh, you know, while we're not recording, but I don't know. I saw it, it was cold. It was bent. There's a whole thing about it, yeah. but no, I think, you know, what, I think that's such great awareness on your part um, and understanding, you know, even though there was an opportunity for you to do something kind of as, you know, a remote worker, you even understood it's, it's not quite going to work like that, you know, especially at this time, what we're trying to do, what you're trying to build, you need somebody there. And it's, you know, that's very noble of you for lack of a better term. I can't think of another word to actually be able to turn that down and say, no, I want to focus on myself and my family. Uh, and, you know, I want to do this now, you know, and, and as you said, that is something that many women do face and it, it is what it is. As long as you feel comfortable with the decision and you're happy with the decision you make, that's the only thing that matters. It does sound like you were having a lot of fun at the WNBA though, especially we had an amazing with team. all those opportunities too. Just as you said, you, you're not going to go to a league and be able to put the teams in a master deal like that. I no. just think that opportunity must've just been so much. It's fun, right? It was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, uh, there was a great gal in Caroline McAuliffe who made me laugh every day. We had so much fun working together and solving the problems uh, of what we needed to achieve. And for so long, again, at WNBA was still as an add-on. And I said, we've got to stand on our own. And Donna was totally, obviously, leading that charge. But it was my job to turn it into money and monetize mm -hmm. it. And we did. And we, we had some great partnerships with 
Ocean Spray and this Discover card and did some really interesting things. AOL had come on as a partner. Um, and it was just a really great time um, to, to try some things, to fail at some things. But women's athletics matters. And we need the WNBA as, you know, as I sat and sold it for so long, it was about having dads take their daughters to the game or dads take their son and say, no, you cannot dunk like Shaq right now. You need uh -huh. to learn how to play basketball. Watch these amazing women play. And the passing and just the skill and the, the, the finesse. And even that game has come so much further. Mm -hmm. um, it's important. And I really am passionate. I literally had just, uh, before our work stoppage here, I had called the team um, at the, uh, in New York to, that just moved out to Brooklyn because I want to buy season tickets. And what's interesting is, obviously, right now, I'm like, how else can I support this team? I live in Philly. I'll probably tell them, I want to buy season tickets and then send a bunch of my guy friends with their daughters and say, use my tickets to go to a Liberty mm -hmm. game. I need you to show your young girls they can grow up and be whatever they want to be. My dad had to do it by taking me to men's athletics because mm -hmm. women's and Dorothy Hamill. And again, I'm really going to date myself. The Dorothy Hamels of the world and the Peggy Flemings and the uh, Kathy Rigby's and the Mary Lou Rettons. Those were my idols as an athlete. And I was an athlete through high school. Um, and it's important to have female role models showing that you can jump higher, pass better, have better footwork. And I think the women need, need the support of the corporate community. And, um, and I'm hoping that out of coming out, they had a tremendous draft last week, wonderful mm -hmm. ratings. Yes. Um, and I hope that people understand the need for this in our society. I completely agree. I always watch the NCAA um, oh, it's awesome. tournament, no matter what. I don't care if it's men's or women's. I want to watch. I want to watch the best competition. They're better play. than us, right? So yeah, I mean, right? Oh my they're goodness. better. Sorry, just not to judge Giants fan, but you know, I'm just saying. I mean, they're better than us, and to be able to. I mean, I watch these men and women, and they're just tremendous athletes. And that's again going back to the core of what drives mm -hmm. us. You know, exactly. And watching these these inspirations on the court and around the field. And that, that might be a really great transition into what you did at Learfield. So thank you for that. I appreciate um, that little uh, little segue, <laughs> I think they call it in the business, into what you did at Learfield, which was working with colleges now. So after your, your time away, you were a consultant for a little while. As you said, you were kind of away uh, for about three years, it sounds like. And then you come back into the business to work with college athletics and working mm -hmm. with over, I think it was 50 different, if I'm not mistaken, college. Yeah, there or... were like 50 or 60 schools at that time for Learfield Sports and, um, you know, which was started by Clyde Lear. It's really a radio company. So the basis of Learfield, while obviously a multimedia rights, uh, very successful multimedia rights uh, company at the time, still privately held at that point, its roots were in radio. So our radio networks across all the different colleges was just amazing. I loved going to Jefferson City where they would actually traffic all the broadcasts out of mm -hmm. and traffic all the spots. And it was just, it was really cool. They'd actually put the helmet of the broadcast on top of that person's desk. So they knew what game was being broadcast from that workstation. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just really fun. It was really fun. I learned more about radio during my time there. I had sold radio, but teams... It's a little different when you're mm -hmm. selling. It's much more spots and dots driven at the college level. Um, you're, you're oftentimes dealing with far more media buyers than you are in traditional sports sponsorship, mm -hmm. which was intimidating. I really had to learn more and I learned quickly. And um, I, I just, I feel like it was such an exciting time to be in college sports. It was just exploding. 
and um, I got to kind of see the front part of that wave, and it was um, it was wonderful. I was there for three and a half years, I believe, almost four, and then I had an opportunity to go. I was traveling a good amount, as you'll remember. Mm-hmm. I had very small children, and um, I remember one month. It was kind of my tipping point. It was in April. And we had some general manager regional meetings and I was covering the Northeast for Learfield as a national sales exec. And uh, they started to make my uh, territory further and further towards the Midwest. And then when Kentucky was in my region, I was like, you know, Kentucky's not in the Northeast. They're like, you're doing such a great job. Just keep going. Um, And so I made the determination Mm -hmm. that I could not cover all of the Northeast and Ohio, effectively, one of mm-hmm. my bigger partners, John Deere, was out of Ohio, out of an agency there, um, and Kentucky, and spend time in market, having coffee with people, getting mm-hmm. to know people, getting yep. in front of people. You need to be present. Um, it, you can't do everything by the by a phone, and that would requires you to go in market for three or four days and just fill your schedule. And one month, I was home four days, and I was like, I can't be that kind of parent. Mm-hmm. And my husband also works full time, so. Um, had tremendous child support back at home with an amazing nanny, but um, that's not, that was not going to be the way I wanted to make it go long-term. Mm-hmm. I could have worked at Learfield a lot longer. I loved it there. I worked with a great bunch of guys and gals. Greg Brown, I, my, I tip my hat to him. He's, he's just uh, you know, retired and he was, uh, he was great to work with. And um, it was just the right time for me to find an opportunity that didn't require me to travel. So I had reconnected with the Eagles um, and they brought me back as a VP. So it was again, kind of came full circle. I know that Eagle green, man. I know it's awesome. The worst green. I'm Um, just going to keep saying Eagles. I'll start okay. spelling it before the end. E-A-G. Oh, no. I won't do Please, that. Please don't sing the song. Whatever you do, don't sing the song. Oh my goodness. So we're, we're, so now let's just, I do want to make a list because you're back with the Eagles doing a lot of the, I'm assuming a lot similar to what you were doing before, just a little bit of higher level, I think before leading, your director. Yeah, leading the group. Yep. Now you're, now you're vice president and I'm sure you did an absolutely kick-ass job there. You did say you missed the Super Bowl year, which again, everybody hates Tom Brady and the Patriots. So I'm not going to say I was rooting for the Eagles, but I just did not enjoy that game at all. It was an incredible game, <laughs> hated every second of it. Um, but let's just, I, I would love, I love to kind of just recap. I mean, you've done you were at IMG with all the properties, it seems like, on planet Earth. Then you went to Detroit with Palace Entertainment Group. So you had multiple teams, minor league, major league, um, you know, venues for music, all these different things. You then worked for the Eagles, so in the biggest sport in the country in a huge market. Then went to the WNBA. So now you have team, you have venue, you have league. You now have over 50 colleges that you've done, radio, TV. Like at this point, you've pretty much done. What haven't you done by the time you get back to the Eagles? Well, you know, it was, um, I had not led a high level senior sales group. Mm-hmm. And while I had done that, and again, Learfield was wonderful because I, for the second time in my career, really did the national sales. And national sales are different mm-hmm. um, than regionalized sales. And so I loved that experience of having to kind of develop a national network of contacts versus a regionalized local. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, I, being able to, while I had started a sales team at the WNBA and put certain methods and models in place, I learned a lot at Learfield about process. Learfield, you know, they manage so many properties remotely. They do a great job at managing process. I'm sure their systems compared to what I, you know, what I experienced back then are, are, are you know, leaps and bounds and would probably, mm-hmm. you know, but I still call sales reports an SPR. Um, and that's what, you know, I mean, you, you, and I use that term at the Eagles and I still use that term as I coach people 
in our, our prop, one of our services that our agency is working with properties to help them build a sponsorship foundation model mm -hmm. and teaching them what I went through with the WNBA and the Eagles to really develop a sales model and teach their sellers how to sell versus having them outsource sales. And I'm a big advocate for teaching men and women to fish and owning those relationships and investing in your people because long-term it's going to be far better than outsourcing in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it was it, going back to the Eagles and leading that and really, again, getting into the numbers and the data, um, but also being able to look up from time to time and say, we are doing it this way. Do we still need to do it this way? Mm -hmm. Do we need to pivot and adjust? What are we being, what are we doing to be innovative when it comes to sports sponsorship? and platform development and content development where we're integrating sponsors in a meaningful, authentic way. What are we continuing to do to evolve our business and innovate? So that was fun. And I, again, worked with a great group of people and um, you know, you, you kind of teed up the, so after three and mm -hmm. a half years, what do you do next? Mm -hmm. And that I just got to the point where I said, you know what? I've sold at so many different levels. I've sold everything from, the circus coming to the palace and you know Harlem Globetrotters to women's basketball, both collegiate and professional, men's, you know, all these different sports, hockey, you know, knowing what a dashboard is, you know, those kinds of things. And I felt the one of the things that I am most passionate about is sitting across from a brand and saying, What is your brand DNA? Mm -hmm. Why why sports is the first question we ask every client. And some clients, they'll say, well, you're always going to say yes because you're a sports marketer. And I don't agree with that. Sports is not for everybody. It's not mm -hmm. perfect for everybody. Aspects of sports can be, but you have to have a clear strategy. And that's where I really started to realize, wait a second, you know, um, I started at IMG a long time ago where we worked with brands in this way. Um, and, you know, the consulting business of IMG wasn't necessarily where it was later in the 90s. And I wish I'd kind of been there. There were some great guys uh, that were there that would have been really fun to work with. Um, but I decided that my next step was to, to, to open a shop, to, to open a boutique firm where we could work with brands on building out their strategy, uh, helping them understand where they fit in sports and out of all of the you know, smorgasbord of sport mm -hmm. offer offerings, which one makes the most sense and which budget do you have to not just purchase the IP and the assets in a partnership, but activate it. Mm -hmm. It always used to bother me at the Eagles when we would do a deal with a brand and then the deal was done and we'd kind of go sit with them to go through an action plan and I'd say, okay, so what type of activation are you all looking to do? And they'd kind of look at us and say, well, I put all my money in this deal. And I'd say, okay. So we would lean in on activating the assets they had because we always wanted to make sure that they would renew. Mm -hmm. And my advice now to brands is before we put all these eggs in this basket with these teams, mm -hmm. what's our activation plan? What do you want to do? What do you need to do? We can negotiate certain activation assets into the team deals, but we cannot give them all our money mm -hmm. and expect it to just be the, the end all be all of, wow, look, our business just grew 10%. It does not work that way. You have to plan. And I think it's dangerous when brands allow teams to set their strategy. And there are some very smart people at teams, but you can't forget they're working for the team. Mm -hmm. And you really want to make sure that you're able to uh, put together um, you know, a viable plan um, that's going to benefit the brand first. 
and the team will appreciate the activation. And I think that, that relation, you've got to remember what side of the table you're sitting on. And because I've sat on both, which is why I called the agency POV Sports Marketing, because my POV on, you know, which is obviously a highly used marketing term, my POV on sports sponsorship, I can look at both sides. I can argue both sides, which a lot mm -hmm. of agencies can't do. They've even, either people have grown up on the agency side and kind of understand agency process. But I challenge that norm to say, no, at times it's not going to be in our best interest to fight the team on this asset. We need to give in because the long-term relationship, we've got to keep our head on that. And we're going to be asking them for a bonus support on something two months later. I now have a chit and mm -hmm. I'm going to use that later. So yep. it's, it's all part of the balancing act, but that's where POV sports marketing came out of. And it's really um, grown and we're so humbled to be where we are today. I mean, you've made it. You're, you're talking to me on a <laughs> Thursday morning. How much more impressive can it get, Molly? Uh, just a couple more questions on POV, if that's all right. Like, why, why did you want to? I mean, especially with, I know, as you, you said, you've sat on both sides. You've been in the agency world. You've been team specific. You've been, um, you know, league specific. Why did you want to go from that side of the properties to now help consulting the brands on which properties make the most sense? Well, you know, it, it's actually was kind of the natural next progression. It was, where do I not know a lot? Where do I need to go learn more? And I learned something from our clients every day, something that's keeping them up at night, a data point that comes in that we always kind of question, where did that come from? So there's a lot of investigative work that goes on when you're working on brand and, and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there. At times we'll recommend something to a client and they'll say, nope, we don't like the idea. And you're like, okay. We'll go back to the drawing board. You've got to have a, you know, be a little tough on this side because you can't take it personally. Mm -hmm. It's very much like sales. I mean, in sales, in a lot of ways, you're, uh, you know, you're going out there and if you pitch a hundred deals you, and you have a 20% close rate, you're doing a good job. That means 80% of them were no's. And so I think we're constantly looking to our brands and say, how do we push them into areas where they're maybe going to go test and try and listen and see how people respond. And that's fun because it's very much, again, it's a new area for me. And a lot of times people are saying, you know, a sports agency doesn't sometimes do what you do. And I'm like, okay, well, they should, because this yeah. seems totally intuitive to me that we would take the, these, make these types of recommendations to our client. We like working with their other agencies. We're not looking to steal business from their media buying firms. We don't buy media. I don't want to buy media. I want to work with your media buying firm. They have more power and in the negotiation because they're buying for other clients. Same with social. We work with a firm called Bounteous on one of our brands, Wawa. And they're great to work with. We sit in brainstorming sessions together and we put a plan together and then we come together to the client to say, we think this will work the right tone of voice. It'll be a great way for you to amplify your partnerships. Um, so the brand side of our business is great because we're I'm constantly learning and just, again, digging into the data of the why sports continues to make sense month over month. On the other side of our business, we have the sponsorship edge services, which is again, where we're going in and helping brand, like helping NGBs and helping venues in different parts of the country that probably don't have a pro team mm -hmm. because many pro teams control their venue rights. But when you have a minor league team who's a tenant in a building like Intrust Bank Arena in, in Wichita, Kansas, you know, they brought us in to kind of say, what is all this, all, all this inventory worth? How should we set our rate card? How do we create more inventory? How do we go to market with sponsorship and drive more sponsorship sales? And so we'll do these reports called venue market and revenue reports. And, the, and then we provide sales advisory. And I love that side of our business because 
it absolutely helps us continue to learn rate and value in every different market in mm -hmm. the country. And I can tell you based on squad data, what a radio spot in Sioux Falls, South Dakota versus Peoria, Illinois versus Manchester, New Hampshire versus Wichita, Kansas versus Charleston. What it costs. I can tell you the out of home CPMs. All that does is help us better serve our brands. And there's time, there's going to be a day and it hasn't happened when a brand client meets a property client and we kind of have to rec recuse ourselves from the negotiation because mm -hmm. we might've set the rate card and the inventory and the benefits packages at that property. But I have a feeling both parties will probably say we're good yeah. because they trust me that I'm going to uh -huh. do right by um, whoever I'm representing but I'm not going to blow up rates that I've already based in reality. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes venues look to set rate cards that are just not based on reality. And, and um, it's just setting sell sellers up for failure. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, I love both sides of the business and, and it's really allowed me to stay uh, engaged with teaching and developing sales talent um, and advising. I love mentoring and advising people like that, but also again, makes us better on the brand side because we really understand the evolution of the inventory offering mm -hmm. from coast to coast. Yeah, I think that's very important. As you, you named a bunch of places that I've never heard of. So that means you know a lot. I'm sure you also <laughs> know all the places that we all have heard of as well. So that again, yeah. just is, um, it, it just shows how much hard work, energy and effort you're putting into this and, and how you really like it. You're smiling the whole time while you're saying it, right? <laughs> like that's the, that's the fun part. It's like, yes, I am excited to know what the CPM of out, out of home is in Wichita, Kansas. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, knowing that information is useful because as you said, it allows you to get a good understanding of what it looks like all over and everywhere and set realistic expectations, as you were saying before, which is very, mm -hmm. very important. Have you ever been, have you been able to work with any of the former properties that you've um, worked with before? Obviously the Eagles, anything in well, Detroit, yeah. the WNBA, mm -hmm. have you been able to help anyone um, kind of from your old teams that you were, you were with? Well, the older, t the, the more established leagues and pro teams, I mean, they really have, some of them need guidance on rate card, but in mm -hmm. general, the leagues do a pretty good job through club services of helping them understand what, what the category averages are. And you know, there's something in the NFL called the Sabre Report. There's the Star Report in the NBA. I know there's uh, um, comparative uh, reports in the NHL, MLB, and MLS, which allow people to kind of see category averages and where baseline investment levels should be. I think that the leagues do a good job. I think there have been some outside companies that come in and help people do a rate card evaluation um, I just question if you've got an established team in the market and you're doing your own diligence, I think you can set your, your rate card when you're a pro mm -hmm. team. Now, listen, mm -hmm. from a business development standpoint, someone might say, why would you say that on a podcast? Because they don't need my help necessarily. The people that need my help are the mid-market venues, the new multi-complex sports developments that are going mm -hmm. in, developers saying, sponsorship can we get sponsorship and how much could we get and we did a project for a developer in houston um, around an amphitheater and we did a national amphitheater study and they came back and they were like how did you find this out i'm like we did research and we have a network and that's what you bought mm -hmm. and they're like this is the best money we've ever spent on a report to understand what our opportunity horizon is what our inventory universe can yield and um, I think that's our sweet spot is really helping properties who don't necessarily understand sponsorship. And now more than ever, post COVID, I mean, we're all on pause right now. Mm -hmm. And 
post-COVID, people have got to have their sponsorship house in order because sadly, ticket revenues are probably going to, well, they're going to go away, everybody. They're not going to be suites. There's not going to be club seats. They're not going to be general tickets, uh, general fans in the stands for a little while. And it's going to look different. And maybe we are starting to take people's temperatures when they're coming up. Um, I've heard some very interesting technology that's being tested that's really going to change um, how we attend an event. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just feel like, um, you know, we have to approach sponsorship differently in the new world. And uh, so many, um, you know, non-pro market venues and sports entities, youth, youth soccer, youth baseball, you know, more than ever, sponsorship's critical. And you have to have your sponsorship house in order so that if you walk into a local firm and you pitch a deal, it's based in reality. And you've got the data to back it up that they say, yeah, you know what? I do want to invest in grassroots youth soccer or grassroots this or collegiate sports or whatever it might be to be able to, 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 to re-engage with my consumer because people are ready to give each other a hug. I hate mm -hmm. to say it, by then they're uh, yep. all going to be so ready to like high five a stranger. And we're not going to probably do that in 2020 for a little while, or it's yeah. going to be your best friend in there at your house, you know, mm -hmm. and, or it's your family or your uncle who you haven't seen in a while that you're like, come over for the game, just because you need to, we all need that kinetic human connection. But I think that's where, you know, when we work with these other properties, these, these mid markets, the NGVs, it's about making sure that you can make an argument. I mean, sales is really about arguing like you're a lawyer mm -hmm. and making a case as to why your property is a better path to their consumer than another. And you got to have your data in order and you have to have your value prop and your story rehearsed and ready. And I think a lot of folks don't know where to start. And that's where I'm really passionate about what we're doing to help people do that. And we've seen tremendous success where we're providing sales advisory and we'll see a brand or excuse me, a venue grow their sponsorship sales by 30% in six months. And they're like, Whoa. we just didn't know. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I know. So, and then we kind of send them off and we're like, we're here if you need us. Um, Jump out of the nest, baby bird. Just learn to I fly. I want them to fly. And they, but they know how to do it because mm -hmm. they just so, sometimes they didn't get a chance to work at IMG and the Detroit Pistons and the WNBA and the NFL to learn um, how to do it. And uh, a sports master's degree isn't going to necessarily, they're gonna, it's going to get you to a certain point, mm -hmm. but it's not going to teach you the whole way. And that's where working in the, the elite leagues is how you, you learn how to do it. So it's exciting to teach. Incredible. Molly, I could sit here and ask you questions all day, but I'm sure you <laughs> want to get back to work. Molly Arbogast, President and CEO of POV Sports Marketing, formerly of the Philadelphia Eagles, Learfield Sports, WNBA, Palace Sports and Entertainment, IMG. Molly, appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Mike. Great to be with you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Molly Arbogast. As I said, just out of this world interesting on all the things that she's been able to accomplish and how incredible she is. And now she owns her own company, so it doesn't get much better than that. So please make sure to follow Molly on all of her socials. Everything will be in the show notes. Please also make sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening. That would be super, super helpful. So Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So thank you for giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day.